0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you're going to join in with us this morning, and I hope you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles provided on the, the sides here in those shelves. We'd love for you to grab a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one home with you as a gift from us. You have a copy of God's Word to study. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord to be near to us as we look to His Word. Oh Lord, we pray that that song would really characterize our hearts this morning that we would surrender and we pray that you would open our eyes to see you as we look to Luke's gospel or this winter, this spring, that we would see you and we would surrender and we see you surrender, Lord, even in this passage this morning. May we surrender all. May we surrender our lives and seek to see your life lived in and through us. Lord, would you do more than we can ask or imagine? Would you be present in power as your word is preached, as we study it together week in and week out, as we share this good news with our unbelieving friends? Oh, it's right here. Lord, you are here. We just pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to respond. We need you, Lord, and we ask for your help now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's with great anticipation and excitement that we begin a new series this morning through Luke's gospel. And we have already introduced the gospel and introduced Luke's main theme through the Christmas season. Um, As we work through uh, our Advent series, Luke is setting out to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ. And he addresses his gospel to the most excellent Theophilus, who we don't know a lot about, but who likely a man of high social status. And we also know, though, that Luke is addressing a wider audience, both of Jews and, and Gentiles. And his main purpose here is to, to strengthen the faith of believers. We see that in chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. But Luke's heart is also to see that a proclamation of the gospel would go forward. We know that Luke is part one of a two-volume series, Luke-Acts. And so in Luke, he establishes the center of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in Acts, he details the power of the gospel as it spreads through the Roman world. And so my hope as we study this gospel together is that, that our faith would be strengthened and the gospel would spread Amen, that it would uh, would strengthen us and we would be about the work of spreading the gospel here in our neighborhoods in Southwest Houston and Lord willing to the ends of the earth. Our sermon series is entitled Seeing Jesus and that's gonna be our goal week in and week out as we come to the record of Jesus' life. And as you see him, I want you to think in terms of three kind of lenses. When you go to the doctor, the eye doctor, you put those lenses in front of you, I want you to think about these three lenses. Lens one is that when we see Jesus' life, our own life, is going to be exposed. Our sin is going to be exposed. We will see how Jesus never messes up, he never blows it, he never sins. Every single biography that I've ever read, it gives both the good and the bad of that person's life story. Jesus' biography is all good. No bad. All righteousness. No sin. In fact, his life is the definition of good. Not only is he not sinning kind of defensively, negatively, he's positively living a life of righteousness and love that is is a picture of what goodness and love is meant to be. It defines goodness. Even when he gets left behind by his parents and he's not to be where he's supposed to be, which we see in our passage this morning. He comes, so we want to see, we'll see our own sin, lens one. The second lens is we'll see Jesus as a savior because Our sin is going to lead us to, we we pray, a Savior. Jesus fulfills all righteousness in our place. He comes to live a perfect life, die a death to pay for our sins and to raise from the grave. So pray, I pray that as we walk out of this room each week, our hearts would be full with the assurance that our Savior is, in fact, sufficient to pay for our sins, to live a righteous life in our place, that we would come out with wonder and worship. And then the third and final lens is one of imitation. That we are called to see Jesus so that we can follow Jesus. We can imitate him. Copy him. Walk like he walked. Live like he lived. Trust the Father the way he trusted the Father. Walk through suffering and evil the way he did. Faithfully speak the truth the way that he did. Show courage like he did. Go low and humble ourselves in love like he did. Die like he did. Trust God to exalt us at his proper timing like he did. In our series, our prayer is just what Paul prayed in Philippians 3, verses 9 to 11. That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. So as you pray for the preaching of God's word, as you look at that sermon card and you see what's coming up and you you think about what we're doing, pray that we would hit that bullseye each week. Lens one, we need Jesus. Lens two, he is enough. Lens three, help me be like Jesus. Help me obey Jesus. And so let's just prayerfully buckle up for what I pray will be a a life-changing, edifying walk through the gospel Of Luke, And we begin at what is essentially the the end of Luke's introduction of Jesus in chapter 2. Here's the main point of the passage if you're taking notes. Jesus had to be about his father's business. Jesus had to be about his father's business. We're going to see this unique relationship that Jesus has with his father that is going to take priority over all the relationships in his life. And this is clearly seen even when he was 12 years old. We get one of the few glimpses into his childhood, uh, which gives uh, uh, kind of Mary and Joseph here a preview of what is to come in Jesus' life. So we're going to make two observations this morning from the passage. Uh, Number one, I want to say something about the the mind-blowing nature of Jesus as a young boy. And we see this description of him in verse 52 that is just kind of hard to get our minds around. And then secondly, we're going to look at the story as a unit ...of him kind of getting lost and found in the temple in verses 41 to 51 of chapter 2. So a preview of things to come is what we'll see there. So Jesus as a young boy and then a preview of things to come. And may we see Jesus today. First, as a boy. So number one, the God-man as a boy. And if you're looking at our passage this morning... ...you'll notice Luke bookends the story of Jesus' parents losing him... uh, ...with these two statements about his growth... So the first one is verse 40. Look there. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then at the end of the chapter, you see something similar in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Luke is, on the one hand, simply recording, uh, Philip Ryken says it this way, the physical, intellectual, spiritual relational development of the son of God simply saying he's growing physically intellectually spiritually relationally but on the other hand we know there's nothing simple about the incarnation God coming taking on flesh Jesus fully God and fully man how can he learn things how can he grow in relationship with God and gain wisdom Uh, so the physical aspect of that of his growth is an easy place to start right? Like anything that's alive, Jesus grows. His body grows and develops from a baby in Mary's womb to a newborn to a toddler. He had to learn how to walk and how to talk. A young boy, a teenager, and then eventually a man. Mary and Joseph probably kept a growth chart in their home. Here's how old you were when you were seven. Here's how old you are when you're eight. My kids have that at my mom's house. We know how old they are and when they pass dad how tall they are. He was was fully man in that he takes on all the limitations that we experience as humans. So he got tired, he needed sleep, he got hungry, he needed food. This is part of what we mean when we say he became man. He came to, to, to save us by taking on flesh and all the difficulties and limitations of a human existence except for sin. But Luke says that Jesus also grew intellectually. He was filled with wisdom. He increased in wisdom. This means that Jesus had a human mind as well, as a human body. And it's easy to kind of fall into a mindset that Jesus had the mind of God, but the body of a man. And we kind of separate it that way, but that's actually an ancient heresy called Apollinarianism. The Bible actually teaches a full incarnation, which which in which the divine nature and human nature are joined in this one person of Jesus Christ. His humanity was a full humanity, including reason, will, and emotions. Kent Hughes says it well. He says, Jesus did not appear to be man. God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise... In his life to the Father's direction. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind and emotions, complete with their inherent weaknesses. So Luke is saying that Jesus' intellectual and moral and spiritual growth is just as real as his physical growth. So if you just Again, our minds tend to just explode at this point. Mind us. It means that he's submitting himself to the very laws that he created. He was, he was taught things that he didn't know. And, and listen, that would have been impossible if he was born with, in possession of a complete body of wisdom and knowledge. I was talking to someone this, this, even this week who said, as a baby, in the, in, the, in, the, in the manger, Jesus knew who he was. And he knew, I, I, I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying, what's this thing right here? What's this thing that keeps going in, what's attached to my arm? It, he's a baby. He's a real baby. So he takes the full human journey like you and I. And he's, he's, he's born with the same mental equipment that we have. There's only one difference. He's not inherently sinful, and he did not sin. Not inherently sinful, and he did not sin. His development was unhindered by depravity, which is something that no one in this room can say. Think about what that means. He was never lazy. He never used his time to, to, he, he never wasted his time. He used his time to learn as much as he could. His mind was reaching its maximum potential to learn because it was focused always on the right things. It's fascinating for me just to think through this and, and to wonder what that would be like for me. I, I don't think I ever read a book cover to cover until I became a believer. I don't think so. My, my, my teachers in high school would definitely agree, right? I just had no, I had no interest, particularly in spiritual things, but really in learning in general. I was more interested in just stuff for me, light, easy, you know, and we didn't have all the internet stuff, but I was doing lots of other things, but what if I had given myself unhindered by sin to the pursuit of God? That's what Jesus does. We see many times, of course, when Jesus displays special knowledge that could only have come from the Father. Sometimes he knows exactly what people are thinking. He expresses what would happen in the future. He has access to these things through his deity. But as a man, he is not omniscient. Omniscient. Any more than the prophets who receive special revelation but didn't have the entire scope of omniscience. The father revealed exactly what the son needs to know as he is dependent upon the father in his life. But as a man, he learned things the old-fashioned way, through observation and experience. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In Mark 5, the woman touches him. Everyone's crowded around him. He senses the power go out and says, who touched me? I think that's a real question. When speaking about the day that, um, the last day, the day of judgment, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Here's the point. This is staggering. I don't want to simplify this tension or pretend that it's easy to understand, But I think sometimes we take the incarnation for granted. We we don't really struggle with all of its implications. But however difficult it is to get our minds around it, this is clear. Jesus humbled himself in ways that we cannot even fully imagine. In selfless love to save us. This is part of his suffering. The highly exalted king being brought low to save sinners. Let me just give you one contrast. Isaiah chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Think about Isaiah's vision. The year that King Uzziah died, God's going to show him the true king. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Compare that to what we see in our passage. A 12-year-old boy sitting at the feet of Jewish teachers in the temple asking questions. And then being rebuked by his mama because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Paul says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is staggering. What can we do but stand in awe? What can we do but rejoice in our glorious salvation? The second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, took on flesh to save us. That's our application, beloved. Worship Jesus worship the God who didn't leave us in our sin, but who came to save us, to walk in our shoes without sin. So it would be said of the one who sustains all things, keeps our hearts beating, who flung the sun and the stars into place, that he increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Staggering and beautiful. With that, let's look at the account of young Jesus in the temple. That I'm just going to say it's a preview of things to come. Point number two, preview of things to come. This is a great story. And I think we have a, a clue as to how Luke found out about this story. We know God wanted this story to be in Scripture. God inspires uh, Scripture. He, men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. But he didn't just drop the Bible out of the sky. He inspired men to write. And so, so look, at, look at verse 53 there in chapter 2. We have this phrase, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And I just think that tells us that Mary is likely Luke's main source for this story. So I can imagine, this is totally fictional, imagine him sitting down with her, maybe saying, look, I don't have a lot of room in my gospel for the childhood of Jesus. I'm going to focus on his passion. I'm going to focus on his life and ministry. But maybe just give me one story. Do you have one story that, that, that maybe you, you, you realize when this happened? You're like, okay, he's not like every other kid. He's a little different. And Mary's like, yeah, I got a story. Let me tell you this story. This happened. Okay, so the story begins in verse 41. Let's look there. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So just as context, the Old Testament commands Jewish males to, to come to Jerusalem for three festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, And and in actuality, the custom of the first century Jews, they were going to make this family trek to the temple annually, particularly at Passover. And the faithful families are going to come as a caravan. So it's not going to be just the men, it's going to be the women, it's going to be the children as the children got older. Uh, Of course, Passover celebrates God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. About an 80-mile uh, trip from Nazareth, and so, of course, that could be dangerous. There's, lot, there's reasons that the family should try to stay together. Traditionally, at age 13, Jewish boys were expected to transition into, into manhood. I'm tempted to go off into a sermon. We don't have time into manhood and when that happens. But th- 13, and this is the age they entered manhood, become full members at synagogue. They're considered sons of the commandment. In Hebrew, that's the kind of that bar mitzvah that we hear today. But it's also common for fathers, it was common for them to bring their sons along early when they were 12, to give them an idea, what to expect, prepare them for this transition. That was the case for Jesus. So he enters into Jerusalem. You have to imagine, there's, this is walled city, some 200,000 people pouring in. Uh, every space is rented. Every hotel is full. Merchants are selling their wares. Begging, uh, beggars are lining up at the right spots. And the sheep stalls are overflowing. For all the sheep and the goats for the coming sacrifice. And so Jesus would have observed these things. He would have observed all the divisions of the priests in their orderly manner. As they would, as they would work through the ceremony. As they, they would blow the ram's horn that sounded. And then the blood began to flow in the sacrifices. Jesus would have seen their family lamb at his father's side. Their family lamb sacrificed. A bit traumatic for any 12-year-old, but particularly this one. The priests would catch the blood in gold and silver uh, basins, and then they would douse it against the altar as they, as they would sing the psalms. And then Joseph would then clean or dress the animal, sling it on his shoulder, walk back with uh, his family in tow, and at sundown they would roast the meat and go through this special meal rehearsing the story of the Exodus. And it was the son's part in that ceremony, imagine this question on the lips of Jesus to say, why is this night different from all other nights? And that was the cue for the father to explain the story of the exodus. Just imagine that question on the lips of Jesus. And Joseph goes into this explanation of the angel of God seeing the blood of the lamb on the doorpost passing over that house. Judgment passing over. Death passing over because of a sacrificial lamb. And the families would would, would go through the story. They would celebrate into the night and the next days. Jesus takes it all in. This festival lasted seven days. We could learn a few things about Parties and celebrations from the Bible. Seven days. Amen. Let's do it. And then and then it was concluded. And all the tents taken down. People back to work. Families headed home. But there's a small, small wrinkle. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So here's the picture. When you're traveling like this in a caravan, it would not be unusual for children to not be walking with you the whole time. Uh, They might be overplaying with an aunt or an uncle or with cousins or with friends on the journey. So it's not crazy to to think that they would set off not being able to lay their hands on where Jesus was. Um, So in the packing, hustle and bustle, Mary and Joseph don't realize he's not with them. Maybe they assume he's with a family member. And as a parent, I can just tell you there's nothing more... Uh, terrifying than losing a child some of you know this experience feeling your heart drop immediately into your stomach immediate panic setting in uh, I speak from experience I've lost many children many times uh, thankfully we found them all I remember one particular instance at the beach which was the most terrifying 30 seconds or a minute of my life where is this person you see this way no is he this way is he in the water and then finally there he is It's the ultimate home alone moment. I am going to restrain from using home alone illustrations for the rest of the sermon. But I think you could probably read that whole movie through this passage. But I'm not going to go there. (laughs) This is not Kevin McAllister. This is the son of God who is lost. They realize at the end of the first day when they would have stopped to rest and come together for a meal. Jesus is not there. Uh, Verse 45. And when they did not find him they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So think about it. They'd gone a day's journey before they realized he was missing. So after a frantic search, they concluded he's been left in Jerusalem. They go another day's journey back. That's two days of an unsupervised 12-year-old in this crowded place. And it's not going to be until the third day that they actually find him. Just, parents, put yourself in those shoes. Eventually, to their great relief, they locate Jesus in verse 46. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Again, put yourself in Mary's shoes as she makes her way through the crowd to see this scene. And the teachers and students, they're going to be sprawled out on the ground. Students were going to be sitting at the feet of the teachers, listening. And there's 12-year-old Jesus listening and asking questions of the rabbis. Just observe. As a 12-year-old, Jesus has a thirst for knowledge about God and his word. Observe that. As a 12-year-old, he's, his mind is a sponge for scripture. He's not seeking to please his parents. On his own, he has a hunger to know and worship God. Parents at UPBC, uh, you, you probably know this already, but we don't have a set age for, for, for baptism. Uh, we, we talk a lot with parents about, about raising and encouraging children in the gospel um, and membership, when do, they, when do they kind of cross that, that line? I think this is a great just kind of diagnostic to think about as parents, if it's what the elders are kind of thinking about. As we look at children, where they are spiritually, um, no, not are they Jesus Christ, okay? We don't expect that. But do they have a desire for the things of God apart from you, apart from, from, from your parents? Do they sense a conviction of sin on their own, a love for God on their own? Not just, not just understanding the gospel as facts, but, but as their own personal salvation. And if you're here and you're listening and you're in that kind of young age bracket, let me just encourage you, what's keeping you from doing this? What's keeping you from taking your walk with Jesus seriously now? From reading scripture now? Asking questions of your parents, of me, of our elders, about the most important things in the world now? Of following Jesus now? Now? The saying is a little bit cliche, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You know this, that God has children, not grandchildren. God relates to us personally, not through our parents. And so he wants a personal relationship with you. I pray that you would take that seriously. This is one of the the, the rare places in Luke's gospel where we see Jesus listening, listening a lot to the Jewish teachers. That's going to flip a little bit. There's going to come a time when his questions are going to be a little bit different. And they're going to cause a little bit different reaction. But that's for coming weeks. Now, even at 12 years old, all who hear him are amazed at his understanding and his answers. I would love to be a fly on the wall in, in that circle. Mary is in a different place, right? She's in a little bit different attitude. Moms, you can, you can relate to this. She comes on the scene, and I, I do not blame her for what we see here in verse 48. When, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Again, our mind just comes to the breaking point. She's rebuking Jesus, really accusing him of not treating his parents as he ought, thoughtlessness, and her, but I think her rebuke is rooted in love, fear for him, but it's certainly also rooted in misunderstanding. Misunderstanding about who Jesus is. His response then to his mother was, we can assume this happens in front of, of all those gathered around. These are the first recorded words of Jesus in the, in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And so let's, let's look at them together. Verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? This is the, the heart and the point of this passage. Jesus returns her questions with another question. Why did you not know where I would be? Did you not know? Have you not yet understood who I am? If you did, you'd know that I'm right where I'm supposed to be. In my father's house. And and if you have the King James, it was translated, I'm about my father's business. Right here and now, Jesus is redefining Mary's expectations for their relationship. She says, notice, your father and I, I've been looking all over for you. Jesus is subtly, gently reminding her who his true father is. i got to be in my father's house. There's no parallel for the phrase, my father, in the Old Testament when speaking of God. He's only referred to uh, by a nation or or a group, but not individuals, as saying this is my my father. Jesus is, is breaking brand new ground here. When he comes on the scene, the first words, the thing he communicates is this unique relationship with his father. Deeper and more profound than anyone has ever known. Right here at 12, Jesus understands that he is the son of God and God is his father. This is a preview for things to come. His commitment to his father is going to override every other commitment in his life. It's primary, it's foundational, and it's necessary. It redefines and turns everything else upside down. Everything else has to accommodate for the first place he gives to his relationship with his father. Friends, how convicting is that when we often do the opposite? We look for ways to add God in, fit God in, the way that we really want to live our life. But Mary is learning Jesus is different. He must be about his father's business. And that communicates necessity. There's no higher priority for him. And she says... And, and and they hear this, they take this in, but they do not understand. Verse fifty, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It's going to be a process for Jesus' parents to understand who he is. I think Luke is also subtly giving us an idea that it's going to be a process for you, the reader, as you look and study who Jesus is to understand that. And this morning, as we look around the room, there are people on a kind of a spectrum, a map, all over the place spiritually. Some of us are just like Mary this morning, looking at this and looking at Jesus, looking at the Christian life and saying, I just don't understand. There's so many questions I have that I don't understand. Some of us think we do fully understand, and we don't. We think we've arrived, and that's actually a much worse position. Here's my admonition. No matter where you are on that map, stick with Jesus. Stick with us as we look to him this year. Keep struggling, keep searching and looking to God's word. Luke, Luke is writing this so that you would understand him. That's his purpose, that you would not just understand him, but know him and love him and worship him. So if you're thinking about some of your non-Christian friends, what an opportunity that you have. What an opportunity to, to say, hey, i would love for you to come to church and do a, we're doing a study about who Jesus is. That's pretty non-confrontational. Or I'd love to sit with you at lunch, maybe once a month, and walk through some passages just about who Jesus is. It's just laid out here by, by, by Luke in such a, a blessed way. It feels like Jesus turns everything in our life upside down sometimes. But the reality is he's turning it right side up. He's making us into his image. And, and, and in a world that's broken and shot through with sin, that's hard to understand. But with God's help, we'll get there. So stick with Jesus. Mary sees early on here a preview of the things that are going to come. Remember that promise by Simeon in Luke 2. A sword is going to pierce through her soul. She's starting to feel the pricks of that sword even now. But there's also joy and awe. Look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Friends, what a powerful gospel image. If ever there was a child who knew better than his parents, it was Jesus. And yet the sinless son of God submits and obeys his fallible, human, sinful parents. Not because they're the best parents. He did know better. But because God's word says, honor your father and your mother. His commitment to his father includes his submission to the God-given authority in his life. It's a good word for us, beloved. We live in a world of increasing suspicion of authority. And listen, sometimes that mistrust and suspicion is warranted. Authority is abused often in a fallen world. But there's also pride at work in that, in our hearts that tells us, we generally know better than those God has placed over us. Just remember that the authority that Jesus submits to is no less sinful and fallible than those in our own day. And he actually did know best. And still submitted himself because he understood that submission to the authorities in his life was a way of submitting to his heavenly father. Surely we should do the same. As Christians we need to understand that although the authority can be abused in this life it is a good gift from God. In the family it's a good gift to have children respecting and submitting joyfully to their parents. In a marriage as a husband leads sacrificially to have a wife submitting to him and to his leadership. As workers, we submit to those over us in our jobs, as citizens, following and submitting to our leaders, as church members, listening and submitting to our elders and pastors. We are tempted to do the exact opposite, to insist on our own way. But God calls us to serve him by submitting to the people he's placed in positions of authority over us, just like Jesus did. But Jesus' submission is more than just an example to follow. It's It's only because he was submissive to his Father's will that we can be saved. We realize that as we look to his life, we have have not submitted to the Father. We are rebels at heart. We need a Savior. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father over and over and over, even when it meant going to the cross. The Father's will was that he should die for all the ways that we have sinned against him, including rebelling against his authority, And he did that. Friends, this is not the first time Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem with his family surrounding him. And then they're going to go without him home during Passover. And they're going to panic looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? And they'll find him after three days. As he agonized over what was bearing over what sin would be like. Bearing the wrath of God would entail in the garden. Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's submission. Trust Jesus. Turn from your sins. He died to pay for your sins. And he rose from the grave. Make him the center of your life. And you, too, will find that you must be about your father's business, like Jesus. So may the Lord give us understanding as we look to him together as a people, that we need Jesus, he is enough, and we want to, through his help, live like him. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. and. We confess, Lord, that our finite minds grasp at these realities, but we feel like we never even come close to, to plumbing the depths of them. And so we pray that you would, Lord, just uh, inflame our hearts to know you. We pray that you would give us a hunger for you, and we would be freshly amazed, Lord, at who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, and that you would give us grace to follow after our King, resting in his atoning work for us, that you would receive all of the glory. Would you do this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.